seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the morning, and uh, we thank you uh, for your word. And as we're uh, continuing on in the shadow series, uh, I want to pray that um, we would see your love for what it is, uh, we would uh, enjoy it, experience it, and pass it on to others. Uh, again, we thank you for Jesus, who is the ultimate example, as we'll see in a few minutes. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. It was the fall of 1937, and Ed uh, Kiefer was a senior in the School of Engineering at the University of Toledo. He was the president of the Calculus Club. He was the vice president of the Engineering Club. He was a member of the All Honor Society, and he's also best known for being the inventor of the cupidoscope. The cupidoscope. You say, well, what is that? Well, it was an invention that he came up with that would be able to determine how much a couple was in love. Uh, this is 1937. Uh, this is a very, for 1937, a very uh, cynical approach to love. But the way, what he decided to do is he'd have a couple line up on the opposite sides of the room and he would uh, attach uh, to them um, an electrical bar and as they moved toward each other, they would start to feel increasing sparks. Not of attraction, of literal electricity. And the closer they got to one another and felt the pain of that electricity coursing through the body, the more in love they must be. This was his theory. And so the couple would draw closer and closer, electrical currents going through their body. They're essentially being electrocuted. And Ed, who I suspect was single at the time, uh, Ed's like, oh, that couple's in love. Look at what they're willing to endure for one another. Look at the pain they're willing to go through uh, for, for one another. And the higher their pain tolerance, the better they did. And he scored it on a couple scales. One was like, no hope. You got no hope. This was the dude that took one step forward. He's like, I'm out. Nope. I'm not, baby, I love you. I'm not being electrocuted for you. Right? And, and so it's like, no hope for them. Or you better go get a preacher, or a, a priest, or a pastor. Um, you're, you're going to get married. So that's 1937. The more pain you endure, the more in love you must be. You compare that to our modern day equivalency of this, which is a show called The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, (laughs) which sends couples to far off locations, pays for incredible experiences, and the philosophy of that show is the more fun you have together, the more in love you will be at the end. And I believe they're like, Two for a bazillion. I don't know for sure. Two success stories, maybe. I'm not even sure about that. Um, But you can see the varying philosophies. Like the more pain you endure or the more fun you have. And and these uh, are 80, 80 years apart. In the middle of all that, in 1967, four English theologians penned these words. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love, love. Love is all you need. (laughs) And they express something that our world believes to be true that is voiced in that song, is that love will make everything okay. And you see it in the songs that we listen to, the shows that we watch, the movies, the podcasts. There's an entire network that has dedicated a huge section of their programming to this called Hallmark, right? Our culture is obsessed 
with love. But I'm not sure that this obsession with that type of love has really served us that well. We started this series last week called Shadows, and we're looking at these excellent kind of godly things that every human being created in the image of God, every human being desires, but they get distorted when we try to understand them outside of the person of Jesus. They get distorted and messed up, and they become just a shadow of what God has in store for us. So last week, we looked at the idea of justice, and this week, we're going to look at this idea of love, because one thing that's true for every human being, I believe, is that we all have this longing for love inside of us. And it's not necessarily a romantic love, although it can be that, but it can be a love of friendship, church, neighborhood. We all have this desire for love, and we're told in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. We sang about that this morning. God is love. Now, you have to understand that. Love is not one of the things that God does. It's not one of his attributes. It is the attribute. And every other attribute of God flows from that truth. God is love. And so he's patient. His patience flows from his love. He's kind. His kindness flows from his love. Right? All of his attributes flow from him being a loving God. And I think it's important to understand that because a lot of people, when they're first trying to kind of check out spirituality or maybe coming back to church or whatever the case may be, this is one of the big questions that people have is, does God love me? And absolutely he does. God is in, by his nature, love. So he loves you, but his actions, John will go on to say, also prove his love for you. John will say, for God so loved the world, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Here's what all this means. God is love. And so God is our standard bearer when it comes to love. Do not get your notion of love from Ed from 1937. Don't do it, right? Better advice yet, don't get it from the bachelor or bachelorette. They're not our standard bearers. Don't get it from the Hallmark Channel. We get our standard of love from God and ultimately through his son, Jesus. And we share this desire for love with God because we are made in his image, but we find it very challenging because of our sin nature. Said another way, let me say it more simply than that, our culture is not very good at love. We're obsessed with it, but we're not very good at it. And there's a lot of statistics right now that show how our culture is becoming increasingly detached from a sense of spirituality and a desire for God, a desire for church, a desire for Jesus. And so you have a culture that is obsessed with love, but becoming detached and uninterested in the standard bearer of love. That is a recipe for, well, the bachelor is what it's a recipe for, right? That that we're obsessed with it, but we're becoming detached from the standard bearer of it. N.T. Wright uh, writes in our book that we've been studying, this is partly at least why love has struck back in other, uh, in other often destructive ways. So he says, when we understand love apart from God, apart from Jesus, love finds a way to become destructive. Love of country has become corrupted into horrific national idolatry and consequent violence. 
Love for hobby or skill can become an all-consuming obsession. Fall in love, even when one or both parties have made lifelong promises elsewhere, is regularly deemed to justify the breaking of promises and the destruction of families. It often then results more darkly but less visibly to begin with in the slow erosion of moral character and judgment. Woo, NT! NT's preaching! He's like, love understood outside of the person of Jesus actually turns destructive. It turns to idolatry. It turns to evil. Uh, The Apostle Paul kind of picks up on this. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Have you ever had a a moment of internal dialogue? This happens to me sometimes, where you're walking around, you're like, man, I think I look really nice today or put together. Have I lost a few pounds? My hair is on point. And then one of your kids takes a picture of you, and they're like, look at the picture I just took of you, mom, your daddy. Right? In my, my case, it would be daddy, right? Look at, look at the picture I just took of you. I'm like, oh, my hair's not on point. I don't look that great. I have, I've gained weight. I haven't lost weight. Right? And all of a sudden, you're like, one of, either my narrative isn't correct or this picture's lying to me. <laughs> they both can't be true. And I think that 1 Corinthians 13 can become a snapshot of our culture and a picture for us that when we look at a culture that is obsessed with love but is becoming detached from the standard bear of love, this text can become a picture for us of how we're doing. So the text says love is patient. We are not a very patient culture. This text says love is kind. We're not a very kind culture, right? This text says love does not envy. We're a culture that is built on envy through advertising. And love does not boast. We're built on boasting through social media. We're a culture that definitely keeps a record of wrongs. Cancel culture. We're a culture that doesn't know that it's true. Is it possible that we need to be looking in a different place? We desire a good thing in love. But we're finding it in all the wrong places. What if we have accepted a shadow Through our culture, we've accepted a shadow of what love could be, but the true thing is found in Jesus. Let's look at Jesus for a minute. John 13 is where we're going to be, and this is before Jesus goes to the cross. Um, He's he's getting ready to share a Passover meal with his disciples, and the Passover was a celebration of how God had delivered his people uh, during the Exodus, way way back in the book of Exodus, and what God, it was a celebration of what God was going to do in the future. And so we know that just a few days before, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for that final week of his life, that a lot of people were beginning to wonder, is Jesus what we long for all along? That Jesus was the future that we kind of looked for about what God was going to do. Is Jesus going to bring the deliverance that we hope for? And they had no idea what that meant. They had no idea what it looked like. But people were wondering that about Jesus. Could Jesus be the deliverer that we've been hoping for and longing for? And the 12 disciples that followed Jesus for those three years, they seem to have these images of grandeur. They're like, man, we kind of hitched our wagon to the Jesus train here. 
And we are going to benefit from him coming into his kingdom. And there's been some arguments this last week about who's going to be on the right and the left, who's going to have the top spot. But they have this image of, man, we are going to be wildly successful because we were on the Jesus thing very, very early. They had no idea what the kingdom was. They had no idea what Jesus was going to do. But they have these thoughts of, man, we're going to be successful. So they come into a borrowed room, and they show up to this borrowed room right before Jesus goes to the cross, and they walk into the room. There's no basin. There's no towel for foot washing. There's no servant to do the job, and this was highly unusual because they lived in a day where everybody wore sandals or sometimes not shoes at all. Everybody wore, the, the roads were dusty and, and covered in all sorts of stuff. And, and you would show up to somebody's house for dinner and it was just customary to have a servant there to wash everybody's feet because the feet were nasty and gross. Sometimes people hadn't uh, bathed in a couple days and you would recline at the table. And so your dusty, nasty feet would be kind of in the face of the person next to you or close to the face of the person next to you. And so it was just customary to do. And it was a demeaning job. You, you really can't highlight enough. This was a demeaning job. It was for, for the lowest servant in the household. Actually, some Jewish rabbis taught that no Jewish person was allowed to force another Jewish person to wash feet. Like, you can't make a fellow Jew do this. right? It was so demeaning to do. To wash somebody's feet was to say that you were beneath them socially. So here's the image. You got a room full of disciples who have been fighting, arguing, trying to place themselves on the right and the left of Jesus, trying to come into their power positions in the kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest in the group? And then you've got a bunch of nasty feet that need to be washed, the means to be able to do it, and not a single person volunteering for the task. I mean, can you imagine one of the disciples humbling themselves in this way? To wash, everyone's, to wash everyone's feet would be to say, I am the least among this group. And they had just been arguing about who was the greatest. And so to wash feet would be, I am the least in this group, and nobody was picking up that mantle. As a matter of fact, if you were to take an anonymous poll, this is psychoanalyzing dead people, I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if you were to take an internal poll of the disciples, I bet they had thoughts on who should be washing the feet, right? I think they had a couple thoughts of, you know, I mean, you know, come on, so-and-so, you know, we, we all know that you're the least, right? right? Why don't you go ahead and wash feet? And so they had thoughts on it, but none of them thought it was them. There's no room for service of others when you're trying to ascend a ladder. And Jesus had a different perspective. Here's John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He said to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. 
classic Peter. Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as my well. Let's not get carried away here, right? Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Dude, settle, right? Their whole, their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So what I want to do for a few minutes is I want to hook us up to the cupidoscope using this text. And I want to ask us some tough questions about the way that we love. Because those of us that are followers of Jesus in particular, he is our standard bearer. We love him. We follow him. He is our Lord. We want to love the way that he loves. So I'm going to hook us up to the cupidoscope here. This is going to sting a little bit. There'll be a few shocks, and, and, and it's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, but it's going to be like that picture that we take that sometimes can be a bit deflating. But facts are our friends, right? Facts are friends. So when it comes to love, we don't want to live in the shadows anymore. We want to step out of the shadows, and we want to love like Jesus loves. And so here's question number one. Does my love, the love that I exercise as a follower of Jesus, does my love transcend the category of friend and enemy? We don't often think of Jesus this way, but there was a wide range of relationships at this table. Around this table, you had very close friends of Jesus. You had one in particular, John. A lot of people believe John was Jesus' best friend. We don't often think of Jesus as having a best friend. It makes us uncomfortable. But a lot of people say John and Jesus were especially close. And so around this table, you had friends who just people that Jesus naturally connected with and, and was very, very close to. Um, you have a mentor-mentee relationship. Jesus was the rabbi, and he's discipling a lot of, of the 12. For three years, they had followed him. Uh, a very close kind of mentor-mentee relationship. And then there are people, one person in particular among this group, who had made Jesus an enemy. I say this because Jesus doesn't make enemies. People make Jesus an enemy. And, and so I think we want to be very careful about following our current culture when it comes to the philosophy of enemy making. If you don't agree with me, politically, socially, whatever, we're enemies. We, we want to be careful about that. It's not healthy, it's not good, and it's not the example of Jesus. But even beyond that, in this moment, where Jesus is setting this example for what love can look like, here's what I want you to see. He served everyone. Friends, he served them. Disciples, mentor, mentee, we'll talk about that more and more uh, more in a minute, he served them. Judas Iscariot, he washed Judas Iscariot's feet. And I would suspect that if we went around this room right now, we could tell story after story about how we've helped friends and friends have helped us. A prayer offered, a meal delivered, a check written, a foot washed. But do we have stories where we serve someone 
who thought of us as an enemy. This is the example of Jesus. His love transcends the category of friend and enemy, and we should be glad he did. Listen to Romans 5. Since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we, wait, me? Yes, we, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You and I, at one point, we don't see ourselves this way. Especially the longer you've been a Christian, the harder it is for us to see ourselves this way. We were God's enemy. Because of our decisions and because of our sins, we were God's enemy. But God, but God in his love, but God and his servant sent his son, his one and only son, to reconcile us to himself so we would no longer be enemies but friends. We would be adopted into the family of God and become his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. God's love for us overcame our status as enemy. It transcended that, and he offered us grace and forgiveness and new life. And it is one thing to intellectually understand this. It is another thing to really internalize it and say, man, I was God's enemy, and his love transformed me and, made me, and, and moved me from an enemy to a friend. How much more, having been impacted by that, should I offer love, grace, and service to other people, even people who might consider me their enemy? Don't have enemies. We are Christians. We don't make enemies because we have been changed and transformed through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we were his enemies, he made us his friend. And so you can't change how somebody interacts with you, but my advice to us based on this text is don't have enemies. If people think of you as an enemy, there's nothing you can do about it. But you can change the way that you think about them. Don't have enemies. Only have love exercised through service. So serve and love and wash feet and make a difference to all those who are your friends and those who are your enemies. Question number two. Does my love transcend authority structures? There's a lot of authority structure language in this text. Jesus is Lord, he is teacher, and he is master. And his authority over his disciples didn't keep him from loving them through service. As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to believe that his authority obligated him to serve even more. Here's how Matthew 20 says it. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Authority can carry with it a sense of entitlement. Authority can carry with a sense of entitlement that we exist to be served by those that are less than us, those that are underneath us. Those people should be serving us. It can be seen in a boss. Some of you have had a boss that expects everyone to do for him or her. 
to serve them, to meet their needs, and they're just kind of viewing every, everyone exists to serve the person in authority. How many of you liked working for that person, right? This can be seen in a patron who just condescends to the server at a restaurant because the service isn't to their standards. And they're like, you, you are my servant. You exist to serve me. And so they just start laying it on so thick and condescending to them. This can even be seen in parents who sometimes have expectations that their kids are going to serve them in some way, their reputation, or, or um, fulfill something inside of them. It's like, my kids exist all of a sudden to serve me and my ego or what I, what I desire for my life instead of what I desire for theirs. And the love of Jesus, he transcends authority. The Bible says about Jesus that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And yet here he is, washing feet, loving through service, caring sacrificially. And here's the hard part. The more authority you have, the more opportunity you get to lay down your authority. Congratulations on your position, right? The more authority you have, the more opportunity you have to be like Jesus. Isn't that great? Until I'm laying it on kind of thick, but it's true. The more authority you have, the more you get to sacrificially lay down your authority to serve others, to love others, to really wash the feet of the people near you. Does my love create in me a need or desire to serve? This was not an easy act that Jesus did. Truthfully, it was a little bit gross, which is why it was reserved for the lowest servant of the home. Like I said, closed shoes were not a thing in Israel, right? Got my Michigan State shoes on. That didn't exist, sadly, right? Um, Dust, manure, crud, it would get on your feet. Like I said, to dine at someone's house, you'd recline at the table so your feet were kind of near the person next to you. And so feet would need to be washed, and it was a true act of service. Um, It was honestly, I I think it's worth asking, right, for for us that follow Jesus, when is the last time I got my hands dirty in an act of service? The last time I broke a sweat, about two minutes ago for me, but I'm not a good example of this, right? The last time I truly humbled myself, truly humbled myself and made myself like a true servant. This generosity and desire for service was so great and it was so strong in the early church. You know what was said about the early church? I've shared this with you before. What they said about the early church was not, you've got to get over there and see their worship band. That's not what was said. You would not believe the way their minister delivers a sermon. Wasn't said. You've got to see their tech, the lights, the video. You've got to see it. That's not what was said. What was said about the early church is there was no needy person among them. And people were just blown away by it. When they saw the early church, they're like, man, there is no needy person among them. If someone has a need, if someone needs help, if their feet are dirty, guess what? They were washed. They were taken care of. 
They were helped. And this was a testimony to the culture. And people were like, man, we got needy people all over the culture. But in that church in Jerusalem, in that church in Ephesus, in that church in Corinth, there is no needy person among them. Feet dirty, they were washed. Need help, checks were written. Need service, it was offered. And it was a huge testimony. People were like, they just serve and love one another like Jesus did. And it doesn't seem like anybody feels like they're better. It doesn't seem like anyone feels like they're beyond that. It doesn't feel like anybody feels like they shouldn't be doing that. Everybody just jumps in and dives and serves. And there wasn't a program to organize it. Everybody was so embedded with this idea and this model of what Jesus said that when they saw a need... Right? They didn't call into an office somewhere and say, we need to organize a ministry to address that. They just did it because this was so embedded in them. Like, let me get my serving towel out. Let me get on my knees. Let me wash some feet. Let me make a difference. And they were, it was so embedded in the early church that it was noticed. It's like, wow, there is no needy person in that church. Everybody is served. Everybody's well taken care of because they're following because they're following the example of Jesus. Last question. Do I have a sense of pride in me at all when it comes to love and in particular service? Let me remind you of the text that we read earlier. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if, they, if you do them. Sometimes when we refuse to serve the way Jesus served, sacrificially and laying down our lives and uh, foot washing, when we refuse to do it, sometimes what we're saying is I am greater than him. You're very nice people. You're not greater than Jesus. We are not greater. And on the contrary, every time we humble ourselves and we sacrifice and we love and we serve, we are subtly reminding ourselves that we are not greater. That he is greater. And that the way you find yourself into a great life, the way you live a great life is by being like Jesus who laid his down and served and washed feet and and made a difference. And I will tell you, as somebody that has done a whole bunch of funerals, I will testify that this is true. At a a funeral service, you're always touting this about people. Whenever you get up, you're kind of looking for these stories about how this person served and how they gave and how they made a difference. And the greatest funerals I get to do are where those stories come easy. It's, man, this person served and they gave and they made a difference. And they they may not have reached the pinnacle of their company. They may not have been in charge of 100 people. They may not have had authority in the world standards. But everybody at that funeral service walks out and says, man... They were great. They lived a great life. They lived a life like Jesus. And I am telling you, I'm telling you, every single person that I meet wants to live a great life. And Jesus, we are not greater than Jesus. And he sets the example for what a great life looks like. It is a life of service. It is a life of love. It is a life of grace. It is a life like the one that he lived. And when you internalize that someone is greater, like we internalize that Jesus is greater, it leads to a place of worship. 
but it also leads to a place of imitation. That I view him as great, and I want to be like him. We look up to those that are great, and we desire to be like them. So Jesus, man, he is great, and I want to live my life the way that he lived his life, and we should want to be like Jesus. Probably a no-brainer thing to say on a Sunday morning, but we should want to be like Jesus. He lived a life we should want to emulate. And, and when we live out these truths of grace and love and service and foot washing and, and loving in those ways, we are exactly like him and we live a great life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his example. And as we get ready right now to enter into a time of communion, we just want to focus on your greatness, Jesus, and what you did the way you served, the way you loved, the way you laid down your life, the way you made a difference, what, what made you so great. And as we reflect on that, I want to pray that we would worship you in this moment, that we would worship you, but we would also imitate you. And we would leave this place having asked ourselves some tough questions that, is my love like your love? the way you love, am I loving the way that you loved? Because that's where greatness is found. May we be like you, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray, amen. We're gonna receive communion together right now and uh, they'll pass it out and it's an opportunity, like I said, for us to reflect on the greatness of Jesus and to commit ourselves to imitating him and, and his love. So just hold on to those emblems, the bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood, and then I'll come back up in a few minutes and we'll receive it together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, I pray that we have worshipped you as a church family this morning. And now as we leave this place, I pray that we would imitate you. We would imitate your love, your service, your sacrifice. Your wash, you wash your disciples' feet. May our love transcend the category of friend and enemy. May it transcend authority structures. May it transcend it all. And may we just leave this place committed to loving others the way that you have loved us. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your love. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We have a desire to love and serve you uh, each Sunday. And I want to invite you, if you have a prayer request or you would like to hear more about our church or you have um, a desire to go further with Christ and to give your life to him. Uh, some of our elders will be in this overflow space uh, a few minutes after our service, and they would love to meet you there, uh, pray with you, talk with you, um, and we'd love to have you uh, come over during that time. So, hey, God bless you guys. Let's go ahead and stand and close with one last song of worship.